You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So last winter, we began our sermon series in the book of Hebrews, and we did so anticipating that God would show us how Jesus in the New Testament era fulfills all the laws and sacrifice, sacrificial demands that we had seen previously on display in the book of Leviticus. And through those first chapters of Hebrews, I think it's safe to say the Lord has done certainly just that. Having now completed our summer psalm series, we're going back into the book of Hebrews because in spite of all the glories that we've seen in chapters 1 through 9, there's still much more (laughs) to be said. More glories to be seen, more truths to marvel over, more of Jesus for us to learn and to love. Now, if you were here with us last winter and spring, you may remember the three-word phrase that kind of built the DNA of our understanding for the book of Hebrews. That three-word phrase goes like this. Jesus is better. You may also remember, importantly, that when the author to the Hebrews says that Jesus is better, he does not say that as a matter of opinion. He does not wave the flag of Jesus is better as a suggestion, as an educated guess. Rather, armed with thorough knowledge of the Old Testament, thorough knowledge of Jewish practices and logic, the author to the Hebrews has presented an airtight, irrefutable case to his fellow Hebrews that Jesus is better than the angels, chapter 1. Jesus is better than Moses, chapter 3. Jesus offers a better rest than Joshua, chapter 4. Jesus is the better high priest, Chapter 5, Jesus' priestly line is better than that of Aaron. Chapter 7, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Chapter 7 and 8, Jesus ministers in a better temple. Chapter 9, that essentially, the author to the Hebrews is saying, if you were to gather up all the major threads of the Old Testament, all the major chords you see running through the Old Testament, if you were to pull all those to their very end, the one whom you would see standing at the very end as the fulfillment of every single one of them is Jesus. Because Jesus is better. And that is news worth hearing. That is news forming your entire existence Around, But I want to make sure as we head back into the book of Hebrews that you get the full freight of what Hebrews means when it says Jesus is better. Because I don't know about you, but when I hear that something is better than something else, I don't immediately go and then discard that something else. For example, if you were to convince me that vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate, which you never will, but imagine for a moment, very hypothetically, if you were to convince me that vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate, you would think it's strange if I went home, dug in my freezer, pulled out all the chocolate ice cream and threw it in the garbage, right? 
That's, that's not what we do. When, hear, when we hear something is better, that's, that's great, but it doesn't mean we just immediately go and discard the other thing. In fact, as is in the case of ice cream, we might think we have the better thing, but the less better thing is still, still tastes good. In fact, the less better thing when scooped with the better thing might even be a supplement might even bring out a bigger flavor, a fuller flavor, than the better flavor on its own. Well, we can get away with that kind of thinking when it comes to ice cream, but we cannot get away with that kind of thinking when it comes to Jesus. For when Jesus, for when the book of Hebrews says Jesus is better, he means it in an exclusive sense. He means it in an out-with-the-old, in-with-the-new type sense. A not-this, but-this-instead type sense. That's what he means to convey when he says Jesus is better. And he means it to convince his Jewish Christian readers to never, never, never go back to the old. The old temple, the old priests, the old sacrifices. Never go back there. Ever again. Because the new has come. The text in which he is going to do that most emphatically is the one before us this morning. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So, at this point in the book of Hebrews, if any Jewish man or Jewish woman is kind of following along with the argument, and within that Jewish man or Jewish woman, there's any remaining sense, even just a tiny little sense, that Jesus is better, but the temple is still helpful, this text this morning would take that understanding and kick its feet right out from under it. That thought can no longer stand once this text is fully understood. The law has but a shadow, not the true form. It can never make perfect those who draw near. That's quite a sweeping statement. You'll note, it does not say it can only sometimes make perfect with reference to the law. It can only make partially perfect. That's not what it's saying. It can only ever be a supplement to the thing that truly makes you perfect. No, that is not what it's saying. What it is saying is it can never make perfect those who draw near. He's pointing out the futility of these shadow ceremonies. The insufficiency of the imperfect priest, the animal sacrifices, the earthly temple. He's pulling out the details in such a way that as we read, we can almost hear the temple itself just groan out with exhaustion. Just look at verse 1. The same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. I mean, a thousand plus years of this thing. 
from the time of Moses to the time of Joshua to the time of the kings to the time of the deportation of Babylon, return from Babylon, 400 years of silence. Hebrews pulls up the scorecard of that shadow-like temple system and then says, after all its sacrifices, after all its ceremonies, after all its days of atonement, these same sacrifices continually offered every day. They have resulted in a grand total of zero people being made perfect. Zero. After all, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 11, the priests who stand daily at their service offer repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. On the whole, it could come across, at least initially, as quite a dismal passage. But take heart. While it's true, he is intending to deflate any remaining sense of confidence in the temple. At the same time he's wanting to deflate that, he is wanting to build and to grow confidence in the true thing that that temple had been pointing to all along. See, look again at verse 1. The law has but a shadow. A shadow of what? A shadow of the good things to come. The temple is not a stagnant circle on a map. It's an arrow. It's pointing to what's coming. The shadow of the earthly temple, the imperfect priests, the animal sacrifices had a purpose, and its purpose was not to be the means by which sinners would be forgiven of their sins. That was not its purpose. If that had been, and it had, would have proved an epic failure. But in fact, that was not its purpose, but its purpose was more akin to the blueprint of a house. Now, you don't expect the blueprint of a house to be your home. You'll never see anyone putting a welcome mat in front of a blueprint. Blueprints help you to see the better thing to come, and they fill you with anticipation. I can't wait until the real thing comes, and this old thing can fade away. God designed the temple as a blueprint, as a hint at what was to come, as a teaching mechanism, saying, watch the exchange here from death to life. Get a good look at it. Watch the movement from unclean into clean. Watch the progression of the priest and the blood from outer court into holy place and once a year into most holy place. Trace these lines. Get familiar with these contours because when the true form comes, then you'll recognize it. The temple was a teaching mechanism, a blueprint of the better things to come. Dear brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The good things have indeed come. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came, into the world. And now take a look at this amazing statement. You'll see. Look at it in your text. I want to make sure you can see it. When Christ came into the world, he said, 
and then you see little quotes. What he's quoting there is not from the Gospels, but from the Psalms. A psalm written by David, a psalm written about a century before Jesus was born. And yet Hebrews is saying that these words are Jesus' words. He implies that these words, though initially through David, are actually more Jesus' words than David's. They're more fitting on his lips than on David's. But how does that work if David was the one to speak them first? It works like a shadow. It works like a blueprint. Just as the brick and mortar temple that one could argue was in the world first was a shadow, a pointer of the truer temple still to come, so the words of Psalm 40 on the lips of David were Psalm 40's meaning in shadow. But when placed upon the lips of Jesus, Psalm 40's meaning comes in its true form. David, the king, the man after God's own heart, lived his life as a blueprint for the better king, the one who was wholly a man after God's own heart, Jesus himself. You might say, so what? <laughs> Why does this matter? Well, it matters because for Jesus to say this quote, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written me in the scroll of the book. For Jesus to say that, would mean two vitally important things. First, it would mean that Jesus, unlike every single animal ever offered upon the altar in Jerusalem, gave his life intentionally. Gave his life intentionally. He answered the call. He went forward with the mission knowingly, intentionally to go and die as a sacrifice for mankind. See, the goats in the temple never arrive there on purpose. You get what I'm saying? It was never the intention of any lamb to go and die as a sacrifice. Not one of the animals ever aimed to cleanse sinners. The calves were led unknowingly to the temple. They were just being animals. And though God designed it to be that way, he ultimately did not take pleasure in it. Because in those animals was never a single sense of, I'm going to do God's will in this moment. I aim to worship God through my obedience to him in this moment. I aim to give my yes to my father, even though everything in my flesh cries out no. Animals, by nature of being animals, lack the capacity to intentionally obey God by their actions. But Jesus 
Jesus, on the other hand, can say, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus had capacity to fully and perfectly obey his Father on purpose, even to the point of death. Second thing to note here, if these are Jesus' words, you see the part, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book? As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What that means is that when Jesus comes to replace the temple, to replace the sacrifices, he's not improvising. When Jesus comes into the world, he does not arrive as plan B. He comes to fulfill the will of his Father that had been written in the scroll all along. The will that had been inscribed there all along, planned all along. The Hebrews, reading this letter inscribed to them, might at this point say, hold on a second. As it was written of you in the scroll of the book? They might in that moment grab the scroll and turn back. Perhaps they turn back to this passage. Uh, I have come to do your will, O God, as written of me in the scroll of the book. And perhaps it was this passage that they would turn to. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet, hear this, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That's Isaiah 53, as it is written of Jesus in the scroll of the book. So the earthly temple, the imperfect priest, the animal sacrifices in a John the Baptist type way prepared the way for the great high priest, the pure and spotless lamb, the heavenly temple. And these good things having now come, the old must decrease, Jesus must increase. Or in the words of verse 9 from our text this morning, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this point. Jesus has come to do the Father's will. Jesus has come because that was the plan all along, but did it work? Like, did it actually work? Did the true form actually live up to the blueprint before it? Did the true form Jesus' death on the cross did actually accomplish what the death of animals proved insufficient to be able to do. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment, and it, it will take some imagination, so hang with me, but imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that you speak that question out loud. Did it actually work? In that moment, an angel appears before you takes you by the hand, and brings you up 
into the high heavens. You feel the wind brushing by your hair. You close your eyes. You go on so fast. All of a sudden, you stop. You watch the clouds kind of open up before you. And what you see there is the brightest light you've ever seen in your whole life. You make out the figures of millions of the most glorious people you've ever gazed upon. You see them crowded as a sea around a central figure, and you notice in the center of them all, the king overall. And he's sitting. The angel whispers to you what you already know. That's Jesus. Perhaps you would wonder, why is he not up on his feet? Why is he not racing around? Why is he not at some helm, clicking dials and turning knobs? Why is he not like the priests at the temple? who are working, moving, sacrificing animal after animal for covering from my sin. Does he not care? He's just sitting. Does he not care? Does he not know how great of a sinner I am? Does he not know that he's my only hope in life and death? Why is he sitting down? Now, son, he turns to you. He says, son, Daughter, I have sat down because all that you needed for the forgiveness of sins, I've already done. Everything the Father demands for your pardon, Jesus has accomplished. All that the Father willed regarding the cleansing of his church, Jesus has completed. In the words of verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's, it's done. It's completed. It's finished. We have been sanctified. Jesus has done away with the temple. Jesus has done away with the priests of Aaron. Jesus has done away with the, the bulls and the goats. And having once for all offered himself as a single sacrifice, verse 12, Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected. For all time, those who are being sanctified, perfected, brothers and sisters. Perfected means the pardon for your sin is paid in full. Perfected means the holiness required of man is yours right now. Perfected means that when God sees you covered by the blood of his son, he sees not a single wrinkle, not a single spot, not a single blemish upon you right now. I mean, can you handle that kind of weight of glory that's yours right now? Like, can you handle that type of love, the mercy of that kind of magnitude? 
I mean, doesn't the gospel almost threaten to swallow you up by its sheer size? Do you not find yourself engulfed by the depths of the grace that you have received? He has perfected you. See, Hebrews wants to put you on that mountaintop. He wants you to put you on that peak. He wants you to be able to peer over the horizon at the vastness of Jesus' perfect making sacrifice for you. And then he wants you to draw the obvious conclusion. What's the obvious conclusion? Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these... There is no longer any offering for sin. None. None. But, I mean, what about us when we read this letter? What about you and I? I mean, I think it's safe to say that none of us, when we sin, we feel the need to go find some temple and sacrifice some animal, right? That's just not our context. So what do we do? We're not in danger of leaving Christ's blood for the blood of animals. But might we take a look at the core of this warning? This is the core of the warning. Now that you receive Jesus as a means of having your sins forgiven, don't turn back to whatever former means it was that you thought would make you pure and clean in God's eyes. Now that you have received Jesus, do not turn back to whatever it may have been that you thought you could use as a means of being made right with God. For the Hebrews, the former things involved the temple and the priests in their performance there. For us, it involves ourselves and our own performance in this life. After all, did you previously look back to your church attendance, your participation in a small group, your daily Bible reading, and did you see, even in the slightest way, did you see those activities as a means of having your sins forgiven? Did you previously think that your being a good person your avoiding of sexual immorality, your honoring of your father and mother, you're getting good grades, you're being a good citizen, you're making an honest living. Did you think that those things contributed even in the slightest way to your sins being forgiven? Were you prone or are you prone to rely upon what is tangible, what can be completed, measured, checked off a list rather than what can be believed on by faith? Do you, and listen to this one, because I think it's very common in my heart, it's here, I think it's common everywhere else. Did you ever attempt to bear any of the weight of your sin on your own shoulders before putting the rest on Jesus's? Here's what I mean. Say it's 9 o'clock tonight. 
You've just committed some sin that you immediately regret. You immediately feel the guilt of. Okay, you, you with me? Nine o'clock tonight. You just have committed some sin. You feel the guilt. Do you take it right to God? Like right then and there. Like you've just sinned a second ago. Do you turn right then and go immediately vertical? Or are you under the impression that you have to let things kind of cool off for a bit? Settle for a bit before you take your sins to him. If so, you are treating time as if, if it has the power to shrink the debt of your sin. Do you think I should go and do some nice things first? Show some kindness to others. Then I'll go and take my sin to him. If so, you are treating good works as if they contribute to your sins being forgiven. Do you think I need to sit and hear me? I need to sit with my head bowed down. I need to feel bad about myself. Think bad thoughts about myself for a while before I then turn and bring my sins to Jesus. If so, you are doing penance. Attempting to swallow even a portion of the bitter cup before you hand it off to Jesus. But brothers and sisters, when Hebrews says Jesus is the better sacrifice, he says so in an exclusive sense. In an out with old, in with the new sense. In a not this, but this sense. In doing away with the first in order to establish the second type sense. So do you want your sins to be cleansed? Do you want the removal of your consciousness of sins? Do you want your sins taken away? Then you need to give Jesus all of them. All of them. They all must go. Every single sin you have ever committed, 100% of each and every one of those sins, they need to all get heaped upon Jesus. You can carry none of them. Your good works can make up for none of them. Time doesn't make them shrink. Every single little bit of every single little sin, if you are to be forgiven, must go entirely upon him. See, the gospel is for those who have nothing. No bull, no sacrifice, no lamb to offer, no capacity of earning any favor before God. The gospel is for those who have nothing and they know they have nothing. The gospel is those who have sin on their hands and know that they cannot cleanse themselves. The gospel is for those who are poor and needing the one who is rich. The gospel is for those who come empty-handed and asking, Lord, would you take care of it all for me? Would you drink every single drop of this cup for me? Every single drop. And so, are you ready to come empty-handed to him? Are you ready to spend the rest of your life, the rest of your eternity, empty-handed and happy to receive your all from him? That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. And so, as we 
turn our attention now to the table. One final thought here to consider. One part of this text we haven't looked at just yet. Look at verse 3. The text points out here in verse 3 that the annual sacrifice at the Day of Atonement served as a reminder of sins every year. Not just that, but a reminder of sins that would still need to be pardoned. A reminder of sins that would still need to be paid for. A reminder of sins someone's going to have to deal with. But this table, which we partake of every week, it also serves as a reminder of sins. But not as a reminder of sins hanging over us, still indicting us, still making us guilty for God. No, no, no. But a reminder that our sins have been paid in full through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And now, because that is what this table represents, if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus for the full forgiveness of your sins, and we invite you, take and eat. Likewise, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, we ask that you let the elements pass, but we pray in this moment, would you give your all? Would you bring your all? Would you bring every single sin and every piece of every single little sin to him in this moment? So I'll ask the pastors to come forward. We'll distribute the bread first. His bread, his body is the true bread. Let us serve you.